Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years and I've always been interested in how people make good investment decisions and if it is possible to teach these decision skills in family office context. This podcast speaks to investment and business thought leaders as well as founders and experts in the investment world to hear their great stories and insights. Today we have Gotham Makunda, head of research for Rose Park Advisors, a venture firm in Boston. Gotham is a leadership expert who studied economics at Harvard and has a PhD in political science from MIT. He was a professor at Harvard Business School previously and is the author of two books, Indispensable When Leaders Really Matter, and most recently, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Please note, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their own firms. Manager's appearance on this show does not constitute an endorsement or an investment recommendation from the podcast host or his firm. One of my favorite topics is Clayton Christensen's work. Uh, you were mm-hmm. a protege of Dr. Christensen. How much direct influence did his theory of innovation have on your own work? A lot. So I worked on both. Essentially, I did my my PhD at MIT, and I had one stream of work on leadership. And many of the and both of my first and my second books were based on that. And many of the intellectual foundations of that are sort of bleed over from the work I did with Clay, but totally separate from my dissertation because apparently I'm a masochist was a stream of published papers on innovation and technology policy. And so the one that was most directly Clay influenced was actually how I met. So the U.S. military, which as you, as you know, I will work closely with on many occasions and sort of have enormous affection for, has a tendency to swallow every management fad that goes through the private sector, often without kind of figuring out, does this really apply to us? I once said to a very senior military officer, if you guys were running at a profit, we would have a problem not an indicator that things were going well. And so the U.S. military really bought into disruptive innovation, largely because the problems it was dealing with at the time, facing a weaker, less technologically sophisticated adversary that yet somehow was impossible to defeat, seemed a lot like disruptive innovation, if you look at it. And so what I basically said was, can you rebuild the theory in such a way that it applies not just to businesses, but to any organization, and then use that rebuilt theory to see how it works for the military. And so in the process of doing that, a dear friend of mine was working for Innosite, one of the companies Clay found. And he said, why don't you go talk to Clay? Being a graduate student and not knowing any better, I said, sure, (laughs) let's have that meeting. I walk in. What nobody had told me in advance was that Clay was 6'9". So I instantly felt like a hobbit sort of sitting in the room. And Clay, as you know, Joe, was just was a towering figure and an even more towering intellectual and a better person than either of those. I was undoubtedly the least important person he spoke to that month. Had some junior graduate students say, hey, I don't think you clearly define the central concept of your theory, and this is my suggestion of how you should do it, would have either laughed or just thrown me out of the What Clay said was, that's really fascinating. Let's talk about it. And so he sat down and we spent an hour chatting about it and thinking that through. And at the end, as I left, this was both a profound moment in my intellectual life because it's ever since I've been deeply tied to Clay's work on innovation. But also in my professional life, because at the end of the meeting, I sort of said to Clay, he was the sort of person you wanted wisdom from, not just sort of an intellectual sparring partner. And I said, yeah, I'm a first year graduate student. I came out of McKinsey. I didn't really want to be a tenured academic. So I don't really know what I'm doing next. Do you have any thoughts as to where someone like me should go? And he looks down at me and he says, I think you should teach at Harvard Business School. And I went, 
okay. <laughs> that was not one of the possibilities that had ever occurred to me. Let's talk about that some more. You never thought about going into academic? So at the time, I was a first year in the PhD program. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm not kidding when I say I was the least important person you spoke to that month. I, there is no one on earth less important than a first-year graduate student, and that's what I was. But your ultimate uh, goal was to work in, in the policy world? or I, I assumed that I would be in some windowless office in the Pentagon where I would never see the sun. Yes, that was kind of what I expected I was going to end up. And so I took that theory and ended up publishing that paper in a journal called Security Studies that got still very flattering reviews about how do you apply Clay's theories to militaries. And even more than that, what it let you do was create a coherent definition for disruptive innovation in a way that hadn't existed in the before. And so that affected my life in a number of ways. One is I ended up teaching at Harvard Business School for seven years, which was a wonderful experience. And the other is I got tied into the Navy space and ended up spending several years on the Chief of Naval Operations' executive advisory panel, advising him on any number of issues, which most of which I can't but in general, it's broad strokes about how should he think about innovation and the way it impact the United States military. What was the clear definition? What did you help them to tighten up? So what I said, said was that when you look at a disruptive innovation, what Clay would say is that they tend to be cheaper, more convenient, things like that. And those are, that's not a definition. That's a, that's a heuristic. And so I have no doubt that Clay could look at something and tell you, is that a disruptive innovation or is it not? But it wasn't always easy. For example, one of Clay's paramount intellectual virtues was his flexibility, where he, he never had more fun than if you came in front of him and said, I think you're wrong, and then he might change his mind, which is, it's not unique to him, but there are very few people like that. And so within a few, span of a few months, many years later, he published articles arguing that Uber was and was not a disruptive. And so what I said was, what you really need to do is think about disruption from the perspective of the incumbent. And you need to realize that incumbents have many different tasks they want to accomplish. Because I was thinking from a military context, I called them missions. So there's the most important mission and the second most important mission and the least important. And a disruptive innovation is a thing that makes it difficult for the incumbent to accomplish its less important missions, but not its most important mission. And that's why it's disruptive, because everything about the incumbent's culture and processes is designed to achieve that most important mission. That's what they care about. And so when you challenge one of the less important missions, what they tend to do is double down on the most important mission because they're sort of trained to think that that's how you succeed. So in the example of the paper that I wrote, I looked at the Royal Navy during the First World War. So we know a lot of stories about the Royal Navy in the Second World War and the, the challenge of getting supplies to England over submarine. But it was actually much harder in the First World War, so much so that I opened the paper by talking about Sir John Jellicoe, the commander of the Royal Navy, the first sea lord. Great title, isn't it? First Sea Lord, speaking to the prime minister, and the prime minister asked him, what are your plans? This is the winter of 1916. And he says, what are your plans for the spring? And Jellicoe's answer is, we have no plans for the spring. We cannot go on. If things go on the way they are going, we will have surrendered by spring because Britain will not be able to feed itself. And so the puzzle that historians have engaged with for, for a century now is that the solution to the problem of getting merchant ships from the United States to Britain was to convoy them, was to put them into groups, put the civilian ships into groups of ships, protect them with military ships, and take them across the ocean. And so at the time, they were sending these ships just one at a time, running them across the ocean. And the odds at this sort of worst moment of the war of a, of a ship going from New York to Britain and then back safely were one in four. But if you put the ships in convoys, the loss rate dropped to under 1%. And so the struggle that historians have had for so long is trying to explain why it took the British so long to adopt convoys, because the British themselves had invented convoys more than 200 years earlier. 
So it wasn't a hard problem. Like it wasn't, oh, we need to learn how to do convoys. They knew how. And the traditional historian's answer has been, well, they must have been really dumb. And I just said, that's not true. The Royal Navy was the, what the time was the world's premier military organization. It was the one every other military organization wanted to emulate. The idea that the people in charge of this organization were stupid doesn't hold water. And if you look at their performance, it actually doesn't make sense. What happened was their culture and their priorities was about winning. The, what they said is they had spent their entire careers basically training to contain the German fleet in the North Sea. And they said, if we can win the battle with the German fleet, then the threat is over. They can't attack us and, and we're fine. The problem is with submarines, winning the battle is not possible because they just go right underneath your lines. So doubling down on winning the battle, in this case, doubling down on trying to sink the submarines is pointless. What you have to do is figure out a way to optimize your secondary mission, which was protecting your lines of supply, not your primary mission, winning the battle. And that was what was so hard for them. And in fact, in this case, one, one of Clay's striking predictions is the only way incumbents are able to defeat a disruption is if they create an independent standalone organization that is freed of their culture and sort of can act, can figure out, can look at it with fresh eyes and figure out the solution. That is exactly what happened here. Jellicoe created what he called the anti-submarine division, basically a bunch of nerds. And he said, go into a back room and tell me what to do. And they came out and they said, try convoys. And that was how they solved the problem and won the war. So who is the ultimate agent for that disruption? So the disruption in this case was the German submarine fleet. And they were, and it's worth noting, they were surprised too. The Germans before the war thought that the purpose of their submarines would be to whittle down the British advantage in battleships until they could win the, the big fight. And that never happened. In fact, of the modern British battleships, the ones that actually were decisive in the war, in any such conflict, the number sunk by German submarines during the course of the entire war was zero. Zero. Not one. That's how effectively the Royal Navy understood the submarine threat and neutralized it before the first shot was fired. These guys weren't dumb. They just were caught in a perfect example of a disruption in a context outside of the business world. The conventional wisdom, obviously, is that generals fight the last war. Mm -hmm. If you're stuck in an outdated paradigm and you're trying to change things, what leadership skills would you need to do that? So I think there are a few things. So the first one is, well, I mean, that is the conventional wisdom. That's not really what happened here. So part of what they were doing was fighting the last war because the last war was about sinking the enemy fleet. But even more than that, the problem was not like narrow mindedness because they still completely transformed their tactics, their strategy and their equipment on the fly. It's actually a remarkable achievement. Their failure was they were unable to understand that their priorities had to change. And priorities are the hardest to change because you've spent your entire life focused on this thing. So what I would say is the key component and the thing that distinguishes, we actually talked about it with Clay, the other person who has this more than anyone I've ever met, ever, is, is the greatest living American soldier, in my opinion, Stan McChrystal. So Stan is a very dear friend. And more than any other person I've ever met, Stan wants you to change his mind. He wants you to tell him he's wrong about something and then explain and convince him that he was. And so what Jellicoe was able to do, and I think Jellicoe is one of the most underrated military figures of his era was that he was able to listen to these people telling him everything you've been doing is wrong and incorporate it and actually say, okay, we're going to give it a try. That's really hard to do for most leaders. Tom Clancy has a line in one of his novels, it's sort of the only quotable Tom Clancy line. People marry their ideas more faithfully than their spouses. And I think that that is really very true. And the ability to change your mind in the presence of new information 
is I think in many ways, one of the most valuable and definitely the most underrated of leadership skills. You have written two books now expanding on your leadership filtration theory. It was derived to explain the outcomes of political candidates, but we've spoken of the fascinating applications to picking talent in general and possibly investment talent. Could you briefly describe filtration theory to us? Sure. Absolutely. So what I was trying to do was understand when it is that individuals matter. This is like a classic dorm room debate. You could go back to the ancient Greeks and see debates involving like Plato as to whether individuals matter. And what I found in fil with filtration theory, my attempt to answer that question, is that most of the time they don't. Most of the time, the choices that individuals make are actually the product of larger social forces, but that under specific and identifiable circumstances, individuals can matter a great deal. They can have a huge impact, both for better and for worse. And the way to think about that is most big, powerful organizations, the organizations that have a huge impact on the world, they do not pick their leaders randomly. They pick them through a process that evaluates the candidates for leadership and gets to know, ideally, everything there is to know about. And then thinks going forward, what will this person do? And is it what we want them to do? And if they, if they can, if the answer to those questions is yes, then that person gets promoted and eventually can might become the leader of the organization. And if it's no, then they get filtered out. They get pushed out of the conduct. But once in a while, for any number of different circumstances, you can imagine somebody inherits the job, the corporate jet crashes, the company gets in trouble and decides it needs an outsider to turn things around. Someone can get the job who has not gone through this filtration process, who is what I call unfiltered. And unfiltered leaders, because they have not been fully evaluated, can be very, very different from all the other people who might have gotten. And because they are different, they do things that other people in the same situation would not have done. And what we know about these kinds of unique decisions is they are very high variance. Sometimes they are brilliantly successful, and we look at this person as a genius who saw what no one else in the world could see. Much more often, they are complete disasters, and we look at this person and say, why would you do something like this when it was when everyone was telling you it was a bad idea and it actually was a bad idea? But they're rarely born. These people don't end up in the middle. So they are the ones who have a huge impact, sometimes for better, more often for worse, on the organizations that they were. There was something that popped out in the book. You were talking about minimal effects. You said social scientists think candidates don't matter that much. Is that really the case? Yeah. So that's so let, let's refine that a little bit. Yeah. So that's in, when we're talking about political candidates. It's what we call the minimal effects model of campaigns. And the argument is that when you sort of plug in the economy, right, and foreign policy and all of the other things that are happening in the world, that you could plug that into a model and output sort of the vote share for the incumbent political party, and candidates have very little impact on that. And so that's an example of the leaders who don't matter very much. Because, and so if you think about 2016, where Donald Trump, whether you loved him or hated him, was as different from a normal president as it was possible to imagine someone being. If you plugged into the standard political science models of vote share, the economy, and all those sorts of things, the share of the vote that Donald Trump got in 2016 is exactly what those models predict. And so there the argument is that in the general election, because partisanship is so, and because so many of the factors that might affect the votes kind of cancel each other out on both sides, the candidate themselves doesn't matter that much in terms of the outcome of the election. But what I focus on in my books is that while that is true for the general election, it's not true for the primaries. In the primaries, the candidates matter a great deal because most of those factors don't apply. Partisanship doesn't matter because everybody in a primary is in the same party. 
And so the skill set of the candidate can have a huge impact. So that it reminds me a bit of the 1950s. If you went to an economist in the 1950s and asked them about the economy, they would tell you that there were inputs and there were outputs and there was a little math and we could tell you what was going to happen. But obviously there's individual actors who have yeah. a huge amount of influence on that. That's so right. is, this, is this an actual change in the discipline? I mean, I think so. What I would say is, what, is social scientists are trained to think about averages. So they're tra- trained to think about me. And averages are important. I'm not saying they're not. But profoundly, I care. What I care about is variance. So, so the average, the difference on average between outcome A and B is usually not very great. But the difference in the outliers produced between by A and B might be very, very great. So, the difference between George H. W. Bush and Bill Clinton as president of the United States, not that much. George H. W. Bush raised taxes. Bill Clinton raised taxes. Right. George W. Bush cut the deficit. Bill Clinton actually ran a surplus. Like, like they're not that different. Because they were both system products. But the difference between, say, Al Gore, who was a system product, and what he would have done as president, and George W. Bush, who was not, right? Again, with George W. Bush, whether you love him or hate him, it is impossible to imagine that he would have been president of the United States if his name was George W. Smith. He was clearly boosted into that position by family advantages, and he had not actually spent that long in politics before he got elected. He'd been governor of Texas for about five years when he ran for president. That's not that long. So his underlying capabilities and his underlying desire, goals had not really been fully evaluated. And so he made choices that other people in his shoes would not have made. And the outcome was very, very different. Is the point of filtering to reduce variation? Because if the aims of the selectors is predictability, that's generally not a hallmark of innovative leadership. But maybe that's not what you're looking for. No, so that's exactly right. So all the way back to the great German sociologist, Max Weber, he said that the, the point of bureaucracy is to reduce risk. And the way it does that is by reducing variation. And so we talk about this in many, many different contexts. So my brilliant colleague, Mike Tushman, wrote a wonderful paper called, called The Productivity Paradox, where he pointed out that companies that have adopted Six Sigma methodology do actually improve their quality a great deal. So they, they have many, many fewer manufacturing defects and things like that, but they get less innovative. And so this was a paradox. People were saying, what is going on? Why would that happen? And Mike solved the paradox where he said, what's happened is really clear. What's happened is because they have developed these processes, in my language, filters, they have reduced variation, which eliminates defects. But the essence of innovation is variation. You cannot have, you literally cannot have innovation without variation because an innovation is, right, doing something that no one else has done before. If you think about that, most of those things are going to fail. If you do something that no one else has done before, most of the time it's going to fail. And bureaucracies don't like failure. So they eliminate that possibility. That's sort of like a corollary to the innovator's dilemma. That would explain why you have this issue. I think that's right. So the, as I said, the, there are some intellectual roots that sort of cross the streams of the different work that I've been doing. That's right. Clay was thinking about organizations that have been optimized to such an extent that, they're, that it's not that they can't innovate. Is that they only innovate in a very specific channel. They know how, if they're making computer chips, they know how to make computer chips faster. And that is a type of innovation. He would call it a sustaining innovation. It pushes the technological frontier outward. It's really, really important. It is the bread and butter of everything that we do in capital. So I'm not, a, I'm not criticizing that type of innovation. In fact, I'm praising it. It's really, really, really important. But precisely because it takes a hyper-focus on that to push the technology frontier out. Anything else is something that it is very difficult for these organizations to see because they're focused 
on it. So doing a cheaper, more portable computer chip, the Intel Centrino, the most popular, the most profitable product in Intel's history. To do that, you had to be willing to do something that was off that mainstream of effort. And in fact, that came from Intel looking at Clay's theories and saying, hey, I think there's really something here. What about the filters behind the filters? Where does education fit into this? Where do things like concepts like the old boy network, places like the CFR, ways to filter folks, mostly through observing their behavior over a long period of time and trying to build up networks of trust, but also at the same time looking for predictability? Yeah. So th those are, that's exactly right, Jeff. Those are all profound parts of the filter. So if you're talking about either politics or the upper levels of American business, those are all parts of the system. I mean, if you're at Harvard Business School for seven years, you get to know a fair number of these people. And one of the things you realize is they all know each other to a really remarkable extent. That's true. I remember the first time I met Clay, like a week earlier, I had had, I'd been in a meeting with a former secretary of the Navy. Clay's never worked at the Navy. That guy's never worked at Harvard Business School, but yep, they knew each other because these worlds are quite small. And what that does is it allows American elites to filter, to evaluate candidates for leadership in many, many different ways. And that's really, really important. So filtering takes a long time. It takes years to really get to know someone and understand who they truly are. And the reason for that, if you think about it, is because if you are an ambitious person who wants to be CEO or president of the United States or whatever, you are going to put a lot of effort into making yourself seem to be what the system wants you to be, right? It's like dating. When you go on your first date, no one's completely transparent about all their flaws and their worst characteristics, not even because they may not be being dishonest, but if they want the second date, they're going to put their best foot forward. So it's not, a, it's very, very rarely a completely authentic self. And so the way you penetrate that facade to get to know to someone who really is, is time. You have to get to know someone when the cameras are off and the pressure is on and see who they really are. And that's particularly important because what we're talking about is power. When you promote someone, particularly to a CEO job or the president or anything like that, what you are doing is giving them power. And once you give someone power, it's really hard to take it away because they have power. They'll use it to hold on to their power. And what all psychology teaches us is that getting power is one of the most profound experiences a human being can under. It changes who you are. And for 90% of people, it changes who you are by changing you for the worse. So 90% of people who get power become more deceptive, more Machiavellian, more sexually aggressive, more willing to lie. Just you name it across the, across the board, they become essentially what you would think of as worse versions of themselves. 10% of people, by the way, power affects them in the opposite direction. They become better versions of themselves. They become more honest, more altruistic, more community oriented. So what happens is that power is a liberating force. It lets you be the person you actually are underneath, the person you want to be, but had to pretend to be someone else because you wanted power. And so if you give it to them, you better know who they actually are because that's what you're going to get. And you may not like it if you haven't detected the person underneath. You think there's some correlation between power and innovation that it tends to squelch innovation? So what we know more than it is that hierarchy tends to squelch innovation. The most innovative organizations are the least hierarchical. And in fact, even in the military, what you'll observe is that the more elite the unit is, in almost always, the less hierarchic it becomes. So in the big army, it would be unheard of for enlisted men to refer to their officers by their first name. My friends who are in elite special forces say it would be, when they're on deployment, 
it would be shocking for them not to be cobbled by the first thing. So there's this hierarchy because we know that it, because innovation requires profoundly saying, we have always been doing this, we should try something else, that you have to be willing to say that and not be afraid that you're going to be punished. And so if there's one lesson from the team's literature that leaps out over and over and over again, stronger than any other single finding, is that hierarchy destroys team's performance. So how do we find that 10% that power improves? So what they seem to have in common is that they think of themselves, their identity is profoundly rooted in themselves as being moral actors. So they think, right, every single decision that they make, they frame that way as what is the right thing to do. And because they frame it that way, when they're in a position of power, again, they're, they're liberated to do what they want to do, what, the way their system pushes them. Can your insights be implied to improve the way we think about meritocracy in the academy? I'd be curious what you think about standardized testing and things like the DISC and the Big Five. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think so. So the first one is we in the academy, I, I have feet as both terrain, but back when I was a full-time professor, we need to think a lot more seriously about, about intellectual diversity. And so I pushed very hard to get more veterans in Harvard, into Harvard Business School, and on the faculty of Harvard Business School. And I would say had successes at getting more veteran students, which we had a lot at the business school, and we have many more at Harvard College than we used to, but none at all on the faculty side, where I think we have, I believe that the business school currently has one. It was a new hire, so, and he's amazing. He came out of West Point, like, like he's phenomenal, but one is too low. And maybe I'm wrong and it's two, but guess what? Two is also too low. So yeah. So I think we in academia need to think really seriously about so we do think very seriously about sort of racial and ethnic diversity and gender diversity. And those are really, really important. The literature shows that all of those characteristics also make you more, that the more diversity you have, the more innovative you become. And so if we weren't thinking about those things, that would be a grievous failure. I don't think we thought hard enough about intellectual diversity. And I will say, I don't have any good ideas there. Like, like it's not you, we, as the academy, academy, like you actually do need to get a PhD to do this. And there are just not very many conservatives who get PhDs anymore. Um, you can come up with lots and lots of reasons for that. I'm not, I'm not ascribing fault to one side or the other. I'm just saying as an empirical fact, that is true. So I don't know. So like, so how do I recruit more people? I know there are some ideas and we're working on it, but it's not an easy problem to solve. But I do think it is something we desperately need to solve. We are worse for it. And we like the country that puts us in academia into positions of extraordinary privilege. That is what being an academic is. It often doesn't feel that way, but it is. We owe it to them to do that. So, so you've placed us on the other side of the table. Now we're trying to look for talent. I interviewed Peter Borsch a few weeks ago and he said, I've never in my entire life had someone come to me with a systematic track record that was bad. And my friends in college admissions tell me the final sort of applications are virtually identical high achievers. And certainly in investment management, there's a lot of folks who have written, risen to the top of the industry. And, and how are you going to make decisions at that point? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It, it is it is a truism that the Harvard admissions office will say, but it is a truism because it is in fact true that we could turn down every single person Harvard admitted and then admit another class that was exactly as accomplished as the one as the one we admitted. My friends who have kids who are applying to Harvard will often ask me for help, and I'll say in general I don't. Like I'm actually pretty careful not to help because if you have the social capital capital to ask a Harvard professor to help with your application, you don't like, you don't need that. But once in a while for specialty, for special people and special kids, I'll make the effort. And I always tell them like, Hey, don't count on this. There's no, no matter how accomplished you are, you are an incredibly smart kid. You are the best student your high school has ever seen. There's no guarantees anymore. 
it's just too hard. And so where I think where we do want to put some effort here, and so this goes back to my filtered and unfiltered, because if the unfiltered people are really high variance, if they're really great or really awful, that's, that's intellectually really interesting. And if your more most important job is preserving your position, holding capital, then that gives you an answer. Don't pick an unfiltered leader. The risks are too high. But sometimes you're in trouble and you need an unfiltered leader. Sometimes you just want one. So there are lots of reasons why you might want to take that risk. So what can you do to improve your odds of getting someone who is a Steve Jobs and not an Alan Lapp? The way I would put it. Um, there are a bunch of different ways you can do that. There are character, a bunch of characteristics we can look at. But to answer, to sort of draw down on your question about diversity, I think you should emphasize in looking at unfiltered leaders, you want to look at people who have handicaps. And what I mean by that is things that make it made it harder for them to get into the final round of contention. For you. So like em empirically, it's just true. If you look at the upper ranks of say Wall Street, they are male and they are white. They are, like, you can come up with lots of reasons for that, but it is just, it, it is just an empirical. And so if you were to look at, and, and we know, for example, Boris Groisberg's brilliant work on team performance in Wall Street, what he finds is that if you take a star investment analyst from a bank and move them to another bank, the odds that they will be a star at the new bank have no, are exactly the same as the odds that a random person at the new bank will be a star. So being a star at one bank has no predictive performance about your ability to be a star at a second. None, except for women. Women stars who move from bank to bank stay a star. Boris has a lot of explanations for that. The most powerful one is that because there are so few women in Wall Street, women develop outward facing networks. And so when they move to a new bank, they still have access to that network and that network gives them the same resources that made them a star in the first bank. And that's a very important part of the explanation. But the other part is it's just harder to become a star women investment analyst. Like, I mean, we shouldn't deny that. It, it's if, if you've talked to any any woman who's worked, made their way in their career, and that my, my wife being one of them, it's harder. They have to deal with stuff that you and I don't. And so, but when you have the top job, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. So the way I put it is, if you could win a hundred yard dash while wearing a weighted vest, think about how fast you must be when you take the vest off. And so, with unfiltered leaders, it's I think it's really important to understand the person's background and full context. So, the Americans, we wonderfully have this preference for what we call the self-made man. Now, the self-made person, the person who rose up from poverty to get to the top. There's a reason for that. The preference has a great deal of wisdom behind it because that's harder to do. Can we use these techniques to identify good venture partners? I think so. I hope so. Certainly. By venture partners, you mean people who work at our funds or people we invest in? Let me back up. It would be interesting to talk about the hedge fund industry is very, usually you have to be quite filtered in order to end up managing pools of capital. But in venture, what's interesting is you get very filtered, but you also get company founders who can come from anywhere and yeah. often end up as venture partners. And for better or worse, maybe they're better at the job or worse because of their experience. And I think it just makes a great case study for filtered versus unfiltered within the same firm. No, so that's, it's a great insight. So what I would say here is two sets. So the first one is being an entrepreneur is a unique experience. Entrepreneur, my, my wife was an entrepreneur before she went back to hedge fund work. And she'll always tell me, you have not experienced anything like what that's like, having hundreds of people who are dependent on your every decision. And that's true. Now, there are lots of unique experiences. I have several friends who are Navy SEALs. I, I think being an entrepreneur is really hard. I'm not sure it's harder than being a SEAL. I have a bunch of friends who've done medical residencies. I, like, I'm not sure it's harder than that either. There are lots of really, really hard experiences in the world, but it is a different experience. And venture partners have seen it from the inside, not the outside. 
And that difference between the inside and the outside is profound. So at one level, I think where venture partners are really, really valued is advice. If you've been there before, you really do have an ability to speak to entrepreneurs and portfolio companies and say, hey, I was in your shoes. And I did X and it worked and I did Y and it didn't. And you should be aware of that. Maybe th- maybe those things won't, contexts are different. Maybe they won't work for you. But that has some pretty valuable knowledge. In terms of selection, so I think of Josh Wolf for Lux Capital. Josh was, a, I have a podcast too for NASDAQ. And Josh was talking about how, what he looks for in entrepreneurs. And I would summarize it. And I'm pretty sure Josh would say this is a fair summary as he looks for damaged people. He says the person who was bullied when they were a kid, the person who has a grudge, the person right. Just because being an entrepreneur is a high variance process. You have to, right? Most entrepreneurs fail. And so you have to be willing to do things that where, uh, where a rational person would give up if you're going to succeed. My joke to Josh was, what you're telling me is don't go to therapy before you pick blocks. And his answer was, well, basically, yes. I mean, the, the sort of wellness and sort of all the sort of stuff that we do is great at an individual level but maybe not at a societal level because it takes people who are discontent or willing to do the impossible and makes them happy, content people who are not willing to do the impossible because it's not worth it. And so the other area in which I think when you're thinking about selections, right, is you're looking at people who, so Josh said, the person who had everything easy in their life, who grew up with a silversmith, he will never invest or not never. He has a strong bias against investing in. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that it's my own, maybe this is my bias, but I like people who are scrappy. And scrappy, you tend to be, tend to be driven a lot by disadvantage and forcing your way through. And venture partners, I suspect, have a lot of insight into that psychology in ways that, as you said, the, the very white shoe world of, I went to Yale and then Stanford Business School might not prepare you for. How can we use those insights when we are actually picking those investment managers? And of course, everybody's track record is wonderful and they all have yeah. the same credentials. And how am I going to discern anything about this person's character in three or four meetings? Yeah. And so that's really hard. And the answer is you're not. So the research on in job interviews finds fascinating. So, and I often ask this question when I'm speaking to executives and the answers always support the, the research that job interview performance predicts one and only one thing about the candidate. And that is how much the person who is doing the interview will like that person. It has zero correlation with performance. And so all of us wonder, like, why do we do this? But I guess we have to. But yes, so you're right. So we will not learn about that. My preferred approach is to what the extent that you can, finding out about the places that that person came from. So you, in a job interview, I have three hours of contact if I do three interviews. But someone at their previous job, they were somewhere for four years. Can you find someone who will speak to you honestly about that experience? Is, I am certain, way more revelatory than a handful of job interviews with someone who is very much trying to both. And then the other one is the same, that you can discern things about people's background. And did they find ways to claw their way up? Or did they wait for the golden flag? The people who claw their way up have the ability to claw their way up. It's hard. I want to go back a little bit to a previous topic. Ben Horowitz at A16Z wrote a famous blog post about wartime CEOs, Mm -hmm. where he mentions uh, there's peacetime CEOs, which are best poised to expand an already dominant company. And then there's wartime CEO who steers the company when facing off an existential threat. Now, the problem, of course, being is you often can't change midstream. Are there parallels here with filtered and unfiltered? There can be. So interestingly, like I don't know if this is deliberate, but that distinction was first made about, amazingly enough, the First World War Royal Navy in a book about it called The Rules of the Game that contrasted Admiral Jellicoe, who we mentioned earlier, with his subordinate, Admiral Beatty, 
And the book argues, in my opinion, wrongly, that Jellicoe was a superb peacetime CEO, but a bad wartime CEO uh, leader, and that BD was a bad peacetime leader, but a good wartime leader. For what it's worth, I think the book is wrong. Jellicoe was, bad, was, was a superb peacetime leader and a superb wartime leader, and BD was just bad at his job. But the, that, that intellectual distinction is pretty powerful and comes back from that concept that w- the needs are very, very different. And I think that's exactly right. But I would put it a little bit different. Filtered CEOs are the people you want when you're in a good situation. When Steve Jobs stepped down as CEO at Apple for health reasons, he didn't try to find another Steve Jobs. He found Tim Cook, who had worked had been a Duke MBA and had worked his way up in multiple companies, including Apple. And Steve Jobs knew exactly who Tim Cook was. And over the course of Tim Cook's tenure, Tim Cook under Apple under Tim Cook's leadership has, I think, created more value than any other company in history. Tim Cook has been an incredibly successful CEO. But I think he himself would say that Apple has not been near, there has not been another iPhone under Tim Cook. That was a Steve Jobs thing. Now, maybe there will be, there are all these rumors about products that they're working on, but he's been CEO for a long time. And that is not a criticism. Like, like if you had told Steve Jobs, the guy you pick is going to make your company worth $2 trillion. I think he would have said, good choice. This was a good choice. Filtered leaders at their best are the Tim Cooks of this world. They do not make mistakes. Unfiltered leaders, and this is the parallel to the, to the wartime, right? Are when your problem is not, oh no, we might make a mistake. Your problem is we're in trouble. So Steve Jobs, when he became the CEO of Apple, about as unfiltered as you get, was a great choice because Apple was near the point of bankruptcy. If Steve Jobs, their most probable outcome and their worst case outcome were the same outcome. And so in that scenario, gambling on an unfiltered leader strikes me as absolutely the right move. You can't go worse than bank. So he might be able to do what Steve Jobs did, find the real, find the, the, the nearly miraculous path that takes you from the point of bankruptcy to the point to, to sort of unparalleled success. And so to, to the, I'm not sure it's a perfect map to the peacetime and wartime leadership model, but that's the way I want it. You used to teach the Bridgewater case in your class at, at HBS, and now that Ray Dalio has stepped aside, not completely stepped aside, but down from the top perch, perhaps we can start to assess his legacy. And, and what's interesting about it, of course, is you have a strong leader at a firm that also has a very strong culture. How would you begin to think about his legacy there? So I think the most fascinating thing about Bridgewater Intellectual, it is the first organization I can think of that is explicitly a metacognitive organization. So everything about the way Ray created Bridgewater was based on thinking about thinking. And how do we optimize for that? Now, you can, we, we can have a long debate about was it successful, was it a failure, the consequences for that. I have, I have a friend who worked at Bridgewater who in his previous life had been an elite American special operator who had gone through SEER training, had literally been tortured by the United States government to learn how to withstand torture and described Bridgewater as the most psychologically difficult experience in his life. <laughs> I'm sort of, well, that's a high bar, buddy. Like, so, okay. But, but what's... <laughs> But 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 what I find fascinating and, and in a real sense inspiring about about what Ray did there is he was trying to he was saying can we by really digging down into how human beings think about the world can we create a structure that helps them think better with the belief that if they think better then that will produce better results now I think what makes it to the if you believe that it has worked at Bridgewater what makes it work is the selection effect that Bridgewater is to as as my friends experience testified, not for everybody. And so if it's not for you, you leave. Now, one would hope that people are not too psychologically damaged by the experience, 
But the people who stay are the ones, presumably, one would hope, who that set of environments actually causes them to flourish, even if it would cause most people to work. But the question would be, of course, and it's two questions, is does that kind of culture help in your investment performance, number one? And number two, is this a good way to run a company in general? So, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. And so the problem is the, the career length of an investor is in general not long enough to make a statistically valid differentiation between luck and skill. So some of the most successful but most self-aware investors I know who work in public markets will say, well, I, I've literally said to me, I've been very, very successful over the course of my career. This is a direct quote of someone whose name you, rec- you would recognize, Joe, if it wasn't a private conversation. So I've been very, very successful in my career, and I have no idea if it was because I was good or all. And at least I hope it was because I was good, but he's like, I don't know. And, he's, and, he, and he says, I can't know. It's literally not possible for me to know. Now, I believe, I mean, I'm a social scientist by training. If I didn't believe this, that I've made a horrible mistake over the course of my career. I believe that learning about the world and learning about the way people think is a pathway to understanding the world better. And if you understand the world better, you can make the world a better place and you can do better in it. I believe that. And I absolutely think that Ray believes that too, because everything about the organization is designed around that with that one. The particular approach that he has chosen, I think probably would not work for most people. The panopticon nature of Bridgewater, where everything is being viewed, everything's being recorded, everything's being viewed, for most people would probably be a hindrance. Ethan Bernstein, a colleague of mine at Harvard Business, brilliant researcher, found, for example, that innovation flourishes when supervisors cannot see what juniors are doing, right? He literally went to a factory line and put up curtains around it and found out that instead of decreasing because the supervisors were not able to like poke people and get them to work, probably actually shot through the roof because people figured out ways to do things better without their bosses stopping them from experimenting. So I suspect that it is not a good idea for most organizations to operate that way because for most people, the freedom to experiment requires freedom from supervision. But that doesn't mean it's a bad way for Bridgewater to operate because of the selection effect. It is possible that Bridgewater is actually able to pull in people who do flourish in that environment, even though most people. So if nothing else, it certainly has been a fascinating experiment. I'm curious if Bridgewater's radical transparency and then their metacognition has influenced management theory at HBS at all. We teach the case on Bridgewater, and it's one of one of my favorite cases to teach. I had a student who sent me a note at the end of the semester once where she said to me, the case that I taught on Bridgewater, she expected that was going to be the last case of her HBS career. Because she's like, I hate not enjoying this, and I'm out. And, and she was so inspired by it that she stayed, graduated, has done extremely well in her career. Not to go to Bridgewater. That was not her interest. But, to, but this idea, this quest of trying to understand the world, she found to be really powerful. What was so compelling? I think it was this question of this profound drive to do better, to do better in ways that are replicable and systematizable and that can be promulgated out to people. And so the most successful venture capitalist I know really, he retired many years ago, like 20 years, but over the course of his career from the eighties into the early two thousands, he had cagers that were just off the charts, kind of successful. And I talked to one of his colleagues once when I was at the firm, and, and his colleague said, look, the thing with this guy is he has a magic nose. He can walk into a company and he can smell it, and he'll tell you if this thing's going to succeed or not. And based on his track record in, in inefficient markets where there is good reason to believe that success is a product of skill, not luck, 
kind of hard to argue. I mean, like the prophets are the prophets. But the problem, as, as his colleague said, is it's a little hard to replicate. He said, I don't really know what he smelled. I'm trying to learn, I'm working from him. And this person has also done very well in their career. So I guess he figured it out. But it's, but it's hard. What Bridgewater said was, we can take people and we can reformulate the way they are thinking to make it better. And if we do that, we'll get results. And again, I don't think it's for everybody at all. But for the people for whom that works, it seems to work very well. Do you think the culture affects the investment returns? My friend who works there claims, I assume that he's pulling my leg, that uh, the computers went sentient many years ago and that all of the culture is just a way of keeping them out of the way, <laughs> keeping the humans out of the way. I mean, I do because I have to. I, I'm quite serious when I said my, my entire adult life is based on this idea that thinking about the world can make the world better. Bridgewater is an organization created to think about the world. The way they do it isn't necessarily the way I would do it, but it's not a, it's not dumb. It is an intriguing approach that may work for some people. So I think it, it would be hard for me to imagine that it doesn't. And what I would very much say is I'm glad someone is trying. I think just the existence of Bridgewater adds to our knowledge about the world in a really interesting way, because that experiment is something we can learn so much from. What do you think about the classic hedge fund model, the old school hedge fund model? I get Millennium would be a great example of this is you rise or fall entirely on your investment performance. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter how you speak in front of a crowd. It doesn't matter how you work with your team. At the end of the day, there's a number and it's, it's a very vicious kind of system. But, it, but of course, it has been very popular over the years. I'm pretty skeptical about it. And the answer is, so Michael Mobison, great thinker and investor and, and one of my intellectual idols, what he says is that different domains have different levels of skill and luck. So chess is 100% skill environment. If you play 100 chess games and you win 100 times, it's because of skill. Roulette is 100% luck and luck. Like, there's no such thing as being a skillful roulette player, absent some flaw in the system. Essentially, what Mobisense says is, now, obviously, all the interesting games in the world, except for chess, I guess, but it's interesting, are some, some mixture of the two. Poker is a mixture of skill and luck. Investing is a mixture of skill and luck. Mobisense's argument is that public markets investing is mostly luck. It's not entirely luck, but it's mostly luck. The markets have become so efficient that it's mostly luck. And he has a fascinating heuristic for that, which is, can you lose on purpose? And when you think about that, that's actually like, like in, in roulette, you can't lose on purpose. If you bet, you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to roll the way it wants. In chess, you can absolutely roll on, lose on purpose 100% of the time. And so what I take away from his work is that because luck is such an important component of the outcomes, what you really need to wait on is process, that you really, really need to wait on process and thinking. So to go back to Josh Wolf, he said when, when, when I interviewed him was, Look, I have lots of, we have companies that succeeded because something happened, because it was because of luck. And we have companies that failed because of something that we could never have predicted. And he said, and I, I'm fine with outcomes. I'm fine with the ones where it failed because when we could never predict it. So the ones that bother me are the ones where we fail because of something we could have predicted. That's unacceptable because that's a failure of process. And so are you a baseball fan, Joe? Yes. So Tony Gwynn. Right. Great. Statistically, probably the greatest hitter for average of all time. George Will's wonderful book, Men at Work, has one of his chapters about Tony Gwynn. And he opens the Tony Gwynn chapter talking about how Tony Gwynn was upset that he had hit a home run. And he was upset that he hit a home run because it meant that his process was wrong. The flaw in his swing that led to the home run, Gwynn believed over the course of the season would do more harm than the home run did. And so that was the idea that in luck-based environments, 
not we're not obviously in purely luck-based environments, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want. It's just luck. But where there's some mixture of the two, overweighting on process as opposed to outcomes seems the most sort of aware and self-aware people seem to really focus on as a key here, a key me- measure of leadership performance. Well, I'll ask you this just because you brought it up. I noticed that a lot of folks who are good at selecting fund managers were people who were obsessed with baseball when they were younger. They were obsessed with baseball stats. And do you think that baseball is a good analogy for picking high performers? I think it can be. I, I did not know that. But I mean, as someone who was obsessed with baseball when I was younger, I certainly hope it's true. Well, yeah, I think especially baseball in the way that it is currently played, right, has put an enormous premium on thinking rationally, as opposed to just being like, well, this is the way things have always been done. And you see the best performing teams over and over again are the ones that have done. So I'm from Boston. I like watched the Red Sox win multiple times, amazingly so. And they won amazingly so when John Henry took over, an incredibly successful trader and seems to have said, the way I think about the world in financial markets, I'm going to apply to baseball. It's not completely shocking that the flow could be the other way as well. Right? And this the sense that luck and skill are difficult to differentiate and can only be differentiated over a long period of time. It is one of the hardest things for human beings to analyze. I, I think that might actually be what the real root of being obsessed with baseball and why it makes you good. Because we do not want to think about the world that way. Right? There's actually psychological research showing that people want to believe that the world is fundamentally just and that successful people are successful because they're skilled and unsuccessful people are, are, are failed because they're not. Right? Like We want to believe that. We, we massively, in our cognitive, one of our most powerful cognitive biases, is underweighting the role of luck. And baseball teaches you that while Mike Trout might be the most talented baseball player who's ever lived, and somebody else isn't, in any given game, Mike Trout might, Mike Trout might, might be outperformed by some other player in a way that very few other sports do, because very few other sports, I mean, at the end of the day, the NFL is a 17-game season. That's not a lot of games. Baseball is 162. That's when you actually can start to get meaningful results. Jack Welch has recently come up for reassessment. You've written about him. Do you think the criticisms are valid? How should we think about his legacy? Yeah, so I, I've taught a case on him, and I've thought about him a lot, probably written about him, because at this point, I've written about almost everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the summary of Jack Welch's career at GE would be that he took one of the world's greatest industrial companies and turned them into a hedge fund that happened to own some tech. Do you think that there was any manufacturing innovation during his tenure, or was it entirely financialization? I'm sure there was some, because you can't run a company that large and that and sort of that aggressively without there being some. But if you're asking me, what was the overwhelming driver of the returns that he produced? There's no question in my mind. I'm not sure anybody would argue that's anything but financialization. And we've seen in what's happened to GE post Jack Welch, what the consequences of and they are not. So you wrote about Jamie Dimon in your first book, and remarkably, 10 years later, he is still at the helm of J.P. Morgan. What do you think makes Dimon such an interesting leader? And is he kind of an avatar for the way you're supposed to run an investment firm? So my first book I wrote because he, the famous biography of him, Last Man Standing, right, where he was the guy who got them through the financial crisis successfully. It's hard not to give him an enormous amount of that the scale of that success when everyone else, almost everyone else in the industry did not manage it is something you should really, really say that the, the, the reputation is, was well earned. And we forget, but going into the financial crisis, he was actually in trouble. The exact things that he did that made him look like a genius after the crisis 
before it, he got a lot of criticism because that sort of conservatism makes it much harder to push your money, to push your profits to the absolute max using leverage and things like that. And so I would sort of doubly give him credit both for calling it right, but also for having the resolve and the courage to push through with that decision, even when he was getting a lot of flack for it. That's really impressive. So I think what I would, the criticism would be to say there is that he is a product of his industry. I used to say that Jamie Dimon is evidence that there is at most one person who can run a modern financial bank. And I'm being facetious when I say that. Of course, that's not a serious statement, but it does get the sentiment across that these organizations may simply be too big to even though we say too big to fail, but they may actually just be too big to manage in a way that's pretty powerful and pretty profound. And it is true that JP Morgan was the only one of the big that probably didn't need to be bailed out. So it did not need to be bailed out. But it absolutely needed its competitors to, because if the entire system had collapsed, it would have brought JP Morgan to. Like they might have been the last one to fall, but the, the odds of them falling would have been 100% without a massive intervention. And it is difficult to overstate the scale of what the 2008 financial crisis cost the world and the United States in particular. Research by the Federal Reserve has found that it cost every single American on average $70,000. You can find, I mean, you can trace through the, I would argue, almost all of the disruptions in our politics where people on both sides have sort of said the system is no longer functioning properly. The political system is on the point of fracture. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, everyone's. I would argue almost all of that is rooted in the financial crisis, where we saw a catastrophic destruction of the global economy, where the United States government's response to the financial sector that was at the root of it was to give it lots of money. And if you are most Americans, your response to that is going to be rape. I'm not saying that the bailouts were wrong. I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that we should have let the system fall. I do not believe that. I am saying that if you are not part of the financial sector and you are, and you are at Ford and got laid off when you didn't do anything wrong and you watched the bankers at AIG financial products who very definitely did something wrong, get huge bonuses to stay with their job. If you aren't angry about that, like, I mean, Rage is the appropriate response to that set of facts. And so it is not surprising that we have had a politics since then suffused with rage. And it just, this is not a critique of Diamond, who is, I would say, an extraordinary, you know, like I would not, not say, hey, I couldn't do his job. Like never, I would never pretend that. But I hope that as he reaches the end of his career, he has the ability to step out of being the titan of the financial sector and say, is this good for the country? As opposed to, is it just good for, is it good for big finance, right? And because uh, I'm not sure, the, in fact, I'm pretty confident the answer to those two things don't overlap that much. What do you think explains his longevity? One would assume success first. I mean, when, you, when you're the first person who did that, you, you get credit. My own experience of talking with people in the sector is they just, they generally tend to feel that J.P. Morgan Chase sort of has its act together more than its rivals in a way that is sort of striking. And I hear that from colleagues. And, and it's sort of unique to hear that where you hear people who have no interest in puffing up a company pretty consistently say that about a company. The only parallel I have to that is I did a, I did a case study of the, of Volkswagen after the diesel emission scandal. And I didn't, it didn't get to publish because the CEO I was studying got fired literally the day we finished the case study. So I didn't get to publish it, which I'm very upset about because it's an incredible case study. But I was at the Geneva Auto Show shadowing him and I got to talk to a bunch of car journalists. So people who don't work for Volkswagen, but who know the industry better than I. And I don't know anything about cars. I'm not a car guy. I don't even own a car. And so I asked them, what do I need to know about Volkswagen to understand this? What like, what's the thing that was car guys that I don't know? And they all had the same answer. The answer was Volkswagen makes better cars. 
So what do you mean? They said, if you take a Volkswagen group, a Volkswagen group car at the same price point as a car made by another company, the Volkswagen car will be better. It will be better engineered. It will be higher quality. It will be better. I had no idea of that. And it was striking to see people who had no reason to say good things about Volkswagen say that. Right. So my observation is when you ask people about, J about JP Morgan Chase, which is the, which of the banks is the one that you trust to know what it's doing? That tends to be the answer. In your dissertation, you noted the central role of humility in great leadership. How do you find humility in people who are by their very nature selected because they outcompete? So it is possible. I loop back to Stan McChrystal. However Darwinian an environment you think the upper ranks of American capitalism are, I promise you they are not as Darwinian as special forces, where survival of the fittest is not a metaphor. And Stan ended up at the first as the commander of JSOC and then the commander of our forces in Afghanistan. So he was the peak of that the peak of that competitive high. And he is among the most humble human beings I've ever met. I mean, so I wrote that long before I met Stan. So it was nice to meet someone who exemplified in his day-to-day -day reality. And I, I think you find it. So I, I have asked him, where does this come from? And as he once said to me, I don't really have a lot left to prove, which fair, right? Like, like definitely true. I'm not, I wouldn't have with that one. But I do think that beyond that, there is this sense. And this is a sort of, it's a heuristic that I often use is I will ask people, how lucky do you think you've been? What role did luck play in some particular success? And I want to, the answer I want to hear is a lot. So mathematically, we know that the more a performance is outside the mean, the more likely it becomes that luck played a large component. It doesn't mean luck is the only component. It doesn't mean that you aren't genuinely extraordinarily good. But the most exceptional performances actually have the largest luck component to them. And so the person who's willing to say, well, yeah, I worked really hard and I think I'm really good at my job and I, I did made decisions X, Y, and Z and they worked out and it wasn't, none of that was an accident. Absolutely true. But it says, but what? There were 15 other things that could have happened that would have ruined things and they didn't. And that was luck. That person probably has a level of self-awareness that I, I'm very positive. How does humility express itself in a high pressure situation like the, the top of the U.S. military? You would think that would be something that you would conceal. Some people do, but not, I mean, certainly not Stan and not quite a few others who I've worked with. And from my experience with this is it's listening, the focus on listening to other people, as opposed to believing that you have all the answers just comes out over and over and over again. And not by the way, fake listening. It's, it's genuine listening. The CEO who's closest to that in my career is Alan Wally. Alan and Alan's case is, is particularly fascinating because I think it's strategic on his part. I'm not sure it's a natural bias on his part, as much as he's like, this is what works, so I am going to do it. And he, he sort of very deliberately sort of, I want to be someone who listens to people around me and doesn't punish them for disagreeing, because that's where success will come from. Alan's probably my pick for the greatest CEO of his generation, and the track record speaks for itself. The name of the book is called Picking Presidents. It's full of wonderful stories. I especially like the chapter on Teddy Roosevelt. The author is Gotham Makunda. Thank you for sharing your insights today with us. Thank you, Joe. It was a real pleasure. Can't wait to see you again. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.